1: Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr James Bergen. The connectivity of marine species is more complicated than you may think, and how glaciation events can impact the migration of marine species is, honestly, not something I've ever thought about. Fortunately, others have, and what they've found is truly fascinating, as we'll soon find out as we hear from the lead author of today's paper, titled The Population Genetic Structure of Green Turtles Suggests a Warm Water Corridor for Tropical Marine Fauna Between the Atlantic and Indian Oceans During the Last Interglacial. This episode is also really interesting as it delves into the thought processes behind developing and testing a new hypothesis. And we get a lot of turtle chat, which I am always here for. Welcome to the Heredity Podcast. First of all, can you just introduce yourself?
2: I sure can. So I am Dr. Jurian van der Zee. To give it a real uh, Dutch pronunciation, it should be Jurjan van der Zee with the R's in there. And I'm a, uh, I'm a lecturer and a researcher at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. Um, and my research interest uh, lies in understanding how past and present ecological and evolutionary processes, like the stuff we researched in the paper, right—the environmental fluctuations uh, driven by the Pleistocene glaciations, for example—have shaped the diversity and structure of natural populations. So I really focus on migratory marine vertebrates. I mean, for my PhD, I also worked on sea turtles uh, mainly. The idea was to study the population structure, migration patterns and demographic history of Dutch Caribbean green and hawksbill turtle using next generation sequencing data. So I did work primarily with sea turtles, but I also worked on marine mammals during my master.
0: Hmm,
1: perfect. Well, welcome to the podcast. And you mentioned their turtles quite a few times, and that is the sort of species that you focus on in this paper. And I know you've published quite a bit on them previously. So what is it about sea turtles that you like?
2: I've always been fascinated by marine creatures, especially large marine creatures. And also, as a kid, I I was really into dinosaurs and, and all. That. So so the connection was easily made uh, in the, in that yeah, sense. Sure. But but uh, yeah, they're endangered marine reptiles, and they have these important keystone functions in in tropical marine ecosystems. You know, they structure seagrass communities, for example, and they're involved in nutrient cycling and transport. And they have these very unique life histories, and these life histories are really characterized by this highly migratory behavior. And I find it very interesting. And I think most people will be familiar, maybe if they ever heard about sea turtles, with these reproductive migrations that they undertake during adulthood. So they can travel thousands of kilometers between feeding grounds to the natal rookeries where they lay their nests, right? That they really travel back to where they are born driven by geomagnetic imprinting. There have actually been a few interesting studies in the last few years that have shown that this is driven by this. And that is one part of their biology that is very interesting. But also when the hatchlings are finally born and they crawl towards the ocean guided by light and then through a combination of swimming and drifting and ocean currents they transition to these developmental habitats that are located far offshore in oceanic waters. And they basically disappear for five to seven years. We have no clue where they go. We have some clue Now, thanks to isotopes and also uh, DNA has contributed a little bit to it. But also there have been some cool studies that have used very small satellite trackers to see where they go. And it's very (laughs) cool. But still, we we call it the lost years, this phase of their uh, life history. And then after a few years, we finally start to see them again. Uh, They turn up in coastal waters in the tropics. We see them feeding in these areas uh, that have seagrass. So they are specialist herbivores of uh, seagrass. And what I find most intriguing, actually, that there's this complex population structure that arises from this migratory behavior because they always kind of return When they are adults to these same rookeries, they are functionally demographic independent units. And that's very interesting because if you look at the historical data, there were lots of major rookeries in the Caribbean that have actually been extirpated by hunting. Mm-hmm. And many of those are, you know, they're, they're still gone because they don't really recolonize those areas because this, this natal homing behavior is so strong, which is very interesting. But in these coastal feeding grounds, all these different breeding populations, right? So imagine that a rookery is more like a geographic entity, but then there's a breeding population that is associated with these rookeries. They all mix at these feeding grounds because of this dispersal driven by ocean currents, uh, partially, and swimming during their early life stages. You know, so that also creates this conservation and management issue because of this complex mm. population structure. Right? They're all over the place, but they're also these functionally demographic <laughs> independent units. So we need to study their population structure and migration patterns in, in order to better protect them.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, they're they're very fascinating animals. I think it's very easy to get distracted by how common they are in pop culture and yes. just overlook how incredible their biology actually is.
2: Yeah, it's 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 funny that you say that because it, that is very true. And I think some aspects of their life history are actually comparable to salmon. You know, just mixed up with salmon. <laughs> it's kind of kind of funny. I also, mention that in lectures sometimes. What are the similarities between salmon and sea turtles? I let them struggle for a bit with that question. <laughs>
1: Fantastic. But I mean, you're also talking there a lot about their migration, the rookeries, and sort of the impacts, I guess, that big climatic events have in shaping their demographics. And that's what this paper kind of focuses on. Exactly. Because you're looking at the effects of glaciation. And I think a lot of people might think of glaciation mostly in terms of its impact on terrestrial systems. Or maybe that's just maybe maybe that's just my bias. Um, so, what are some of the ways that glaciation events impact marine systems? For say, the sea turtles.
2: Uh, first of all, I would say that this bias is actually very very normal and natural, right? Because we are terrestrial species ourselves, mm. right? Many people probably have seen glaciers at some point in their life, so it's very easy to imagine that if we talk about the ice ages, to imagine these large continental ice sheets just blocking everything, especially in the northern uh, northern hemisphere. Right? So it's, it's, it is it's it is easy to forget that there's actually lots of other impacts that the glaciations actually had. Because a an important consequence of the formation of these massive continental ice sheets was that there was tremendous sea level regression. I think if I recall correctly, uh, during the peak of the last glaciation, so that's the last glacial maximum, sea levels were about 100 to 120 meters lower than they are today. Wow. So there, there were actually a lot of continental shelf habitat that became exposed, right? So it was no mm. longer accessible to marine organisms. So you see this lowering of the sea levels, then a tremendous reduction in, in shallow marine habitat. And all of a sudden you have barriers to migration and gene flow as well in marine species. For example, the Indo-Malai archipelago is a very good example. There are shelves over there that became exposed when the sea levels lowered. And it actually created this strong barrier between the Pacific and the Indian Oceans. Right? All of a sudden there was a very wow. narrow passage uh, between these oceans. And we see that in the genetics of uh, marine species in this region. Another consequence uh was that climate zones shifted, right? So so that was like part of the reason that these continental ice sheets form. Temperate climate sh- zones, they shifted towards the equator. And it also affected marine species. I mean, we see the opposite now with climate change actually happening, that there is actually a shift in the other direction, that temperate and warm adapted species are actually moving upward towards the poles. You know, so the, the distribution of marine species was also very much affected.
1: Um, and I guess that kind of brings us on nicely to the question about what you actually set out to do in this study, because I guess you were looking at the impact of these glaciation events on the sea turtles. So what specifically was it you were looking for?
2: Yeah, so very specifically, we, we set out to test this hypothesis that we had, that we uh, called the warm water corridor hypothesis. So it, it wasn't actually necessarily uh, specifically aimed at sea turtles in that regard. It, it was more of, a, you know, in general, tropical marine fauna. Because this area, uh, like Southwest Indian Ocean, but also the waters around Mm. Southern Africa, they're very interesting because there's this cold water current. It's called the Benguela current. So it, it has always been believed to be a very strong barrier to dispersal for tropical marine fauna. But the interesting thing is that there has actually been a lot of genetic evidence that has shown that there must have been some past colonizations happening. But what they also knew from oceanographic studies is that there are these eddies of warm water that originate in the Agulhas current that flows between Madagascar and Mozambique and it moves southward so that's really warm water but every now and then you have these eddies that form and they leak into the Atlantic Ocean and it's been oh, hypothesized wow. that might actually be an avenue for dispersal you know they they can kind of piggyback on these <laughs> uh, on these warm water gyres and and that can be like a migratory corridor but That mechanism really implies an east-to-west transport because the eddies don't go any other way, right? Mm. So in a way, we started thinking about that. So, okay, but what about west-to-east patterns? And then we start to think about, because uh, we worked with other species before and and also similar questions, and I've always been interested in this. So what if these shifts in climate zones also can play a role here? So uh, if it's actually... Rather than if it's cold, it moves towards the equator. What if it also works in the other way when it's warmer than the present, Mm. right? So does that also mean that uh, warmer climate zones actually move towards the poles, and uh, we started reading up on the issue and then it also turned out, uh, you know, because I'm, I'm a population geneticist, right? <laughs> so I, I, I was reading into these oceanographic studies and then it also turned out that this Agula's leakage, so this, this warm water flow from the Indian Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean, that also fluctuated with the glacial cycles. And I thought, wow, that, that's really interesting because this implies also this relation with temperature. No, so that resulted in this warm water corridor hypothesis. Okay, if it's warmer than the present, does that mean that there's basically a, a more permanent warm water belt or corridor uh, around Southern Africa? And of course, our prime suspect for a, a period uh, was the, the previous interglacial, which occurred 130 to 115,000 years ago. And it's frequently been used as a model for like, looking at possible future climate change scenarios. There have been quite some coral uh, studies, for example, that have looked at the past distribution of coral reefs during that time mm-hmm. period to, to get a sense of okay, what might happen if, if warming continues now. Uh, So that actually, you know, that that brought us to this hypothesis and and, and we had this uh, green turtle project and and we thought like, oh, that's kind of cool. Maybe (laughs) test that with these green turtles, right? Because there was a a very nice paper in 2007 that actually showed this uh, West to East colonization by uh, Atlantic mitochondrial DNA lineages colonization into the um, southwest indian ocean so it was a, actually a good model system in that regard <laughs> so nothing about conservation uh, necessarily but, <laughs> but really using green turtles as a as a model quite interesting nice. yeah so that brought us to you know let's look at their population structure using ngs uh, data and see uh, see if we can test this hypothesis
1: I mean, it sounds like a very cool hypothesis, but it also sounds very ambitious to try and find evidence for it in the genome of a turtle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'm really curious about how you actually went about testing this hypothesis with your turtles.
2: Yeah. So we we ended up with uh, three sampling locations. So we had Bonaire. We had some data from Sao Tome and Princip uh, Island. So that's mm. uh, located... If you imagine Africa, and, it, and it, 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 it's like...
1: It's it, just e- off the sort of southwest of the part that bulges out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah.
2: It's, it's, yeah, exactly. Kind of. It. So that's like the East... That was our East Atlantic sample. Yeah. And then we had some uh, samples from Madagascar through another collaborator co-author on the paper as well, both of these people. But we collected the data from Bonaire ourselves. And that was really Ooh, cool, nice. of course, because <laughs> uh, you know, I started my PhD in 2015. And then immediately I, I had the opportunity to go into the field. and work with the people of Sea uh, Turtle Conservation Bonaire who are experts at field research and conservation and management of sea turtles in that area they they're really good so we went out to do this in water monitoring and tagging went out on oh. a boat and with a team of snorkelers and a and a large net like a, a special net that was designed for sea turtle reef mm. research so large mesh size so you don't end up catching a lot of other things that you don't necessarily <laughs> want to uh, tag like a uh, stingray uh for example. <laughs> and uh, so that was really cool to do. And then each of these capture seed turtles were weighed, tagged, we took a sample and then we released them back into the water. And so we we'll skip forward then a little bit and we finally have the samples in the lab. Uh, and then we used uh, double digest restriction-associated DNA sequencing to generate genome-wide data, right? So they, they are basically this, this, this short read sequencing approach. Uh, it's an Illumina approach. And uh, so then we ended up with thousands and thousands of SNPs from a, a sample of twenty-eight green turtles. And then nice. yeah, so and then with these samples we we uh, essentially looked at the population structure using various methods. So we looked at classic genetic differentiation, just you know the the usual suspects, uh, calculating <laughs> FST based upon frequencies, but also counts of variants. Uh, we also did a simulation study, which I thought was very very nice yeah. because. Especially when you work with endangered animals, I think it's in general with animals, actually, it, it's mm. important to, to minimize uh, the invasiveness. You know, we use a sterile scalpel blade to take a small sample from the, from the neck tissue, right? So it heals quickly, mm. but still, it's, it's, it's not a nice thing to do necessarily. So
1: anyone who's done any field work who's listening will probably have memories of. Feeling quite guilty as they're taking a sample. Yeah. Even if you know the animal's going to be fine, it's still unpleasant.
2: Exactly. You should leave them alone as much as possible, especially if you want to do conservation, right? That, that's the goal. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Ultimately, you want to protect them. So that was quite interesting because we did see uh, quite some genetic differentiation between these three areas, which makes sense, of course. The, the distances are quite large. But then it, it also showed that we only needed six samples at this level of genetic differentiation to reliably characterize you know, population structure using DNA. Quite mm. interesting. And yeah, we did, also did some other analysis as well, uh, clustering analysis. So both model-based and multivariate. Uh, both have their pro and cons, of course. Mm. One is slow, the other is fast, but... Uh, <laughs> So it's good to apply both to see if it kind of adds up mm. and uh, we also looked at coancestry among samples, so basically that uh, it, cr- it creates a, a tree and a, and a nice uh, matrix showing how how related uh, the samples are in, in in terms of their coancestry. Mm. And then I think the most important analysis that we did that that actually allowed us to test this hypothesis was a coalescent model selection. Oh nice. So essentially we modeled four scenarios. Uh, we had a basic island model that kind of assumes that uh, you know each of these, three populations just exchanges migrants at a certain rate and these rates were allowed to vary of course but we did not model any relationship in terms of divergence Uh, that's what we did in the other three models so essentially those other three models differed in which of the populations was the ancestor. It would be better to ultimately have a true ancestral population but we actually played around a little bit with that but we couldn't get that model to work so we opted for this one to see you know, which populations diverge from which population in the end. Mm. That was kind of the idea. And then ultimately for the best model, then we also estimated the parameters in that model to get a sense of the divergence times and, and, and also the thetas, so the genetic diversity. And ultimately we could then date the divergence times uh, using an estimate of the mutation rate. Nice. And if, yeah, and so that was, that was kind of interesting because it's, it's a big question which mutation rate is the real mutation rate. There's been lots of discussion as well about uh, the time dependency of mutation rates. So we, we, we decided to investigate basically a range of mutation rates. So we, we took a, like a slow rate. I think we took from the genome-wide divergence between alligators and crocodiles, a very nice science paper on that. Uh, and then as an upper bound, we took a, a genome-wide de novo uh, mutation rate estimated from yes. pedigrees in humans. So that, that seemed to us seemed like a, a logical upper boundary because we kind of knew that sea turtles probably don't <laughs> evolve as fast uh, like, in terms of their uh, mutation rates, at least, as humans, and that they're more in line with alligators. But of course, if it's a phylogenetic-based estimate, it might underestimate the actual mutation rate. Mm-hmm. So this, this seemed like a logical thing to do.
1: Yeah, m- mutation rates are always a bit of a challenge. <laughs> yes,
2: <laughs> I've never met anyone that says, "Oh yeah, of course, we perfectly know how this, how a mutation rate, uh, what it should yeah.
1: be." A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. So that's, I mean, that's a really uh, nice diversity of tests that you were running. And I'm curious as to what you were finding and how your results were tying in with your warm water hypothesis.
2: Yeah. Well, I think the most, the most important thing that we found, you know, basically going in the opposite uh, direction as in, in terms of the methods is that the, you know, the coalescent model selection basically showed that the East Atlantic population seemed to be ancestral to the others, at least where we allowed the Caribbean to diverge from the East Atlantic, but also the Southwest Indian Ocean population to diverge from the East Atlantic was the best supported. And when we calculated these divergence times, they were both associated with this timing of the previous interglacial so it it fell right around the transition from the last interglacial to the previous glacial period so the last ice age and that that was right in line with what we expected it to be you know in terms of this warm water corridor hypothesis so so the the results fit the hypothesis very well Uh, this is just one study (laughs) of course
1: (laughs) still a good result
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's it's really nice. And 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 we found various other things as well, of course, that were more in line with what we already knew. For example, that the population structure really reflects this pattern of greater interoceanic differentiation, mm. so that is Atlantic versus Southwest Indian Ocean in comparison with intra-oceanic divergence, so that's Caribbean versus East Atlantic. And it shows this this essentially that we had a hierarchical population structure mm. uh in there as well. So the structure that we also found within the Atlantic, that uh, seems to reflect this isolation into glacial refugia that has been described in earlier studies as well. And that idea can be dated back to the mid-90s when the the first mitochondrial DNA control Mm. region papers were published on the population structure and phylogeography of uh, green turtles. So it's nice to see that it does align in that (laughs) regard. It would be yeah. scary if it didn't.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's a good validation. And I guess it, it is really interesting that you're finding support for this warm water hypothesis. But I wonder, why is it important that you're finding evidence for the warm water corridor? Like, how is it going to shape our thinking of marine systems and marine connectivity?
2: I think it's really nice that it offers this explanation, right, for these west to east patterns of gene flow and colonization that we see in, in several tropical marine fauna in this region, it's it's a first step towards perhaps shedding more light on these patterns of population structure and connectivity in in other species that occur in the Southwest Indian Ocean in in the Atlantic. And I think that also really offers exciting opportunities for uh, uh, more NGS studies in this area, because uh, in a way, we were able to date this divergence by having lots of, of SNPs. Mm. Uh, which is very interesting. And then other people could also do that and also hack away at this hypothesis <laughs> to see if it holds up. Maybe we'll find differences if you have tested in species with different thermal preferences, for example, or different life history strategies. I think that will be very nice to see, that it offers more, uh, you know, <laughs> always opportunities for more research. And I think that on a larger level, because... We often are interested in population structure and connectivity for conservation and management purposes. But these historical processes are so important in driving contemporary genetic population structure that those processes also need to be accounted for. So if we better understand those processes, that helps us evaluate the patterns we see today and helps inform management in that, uh, in that sense.
1: Mm, For sure. It's really interesting hearing you talk about it being a first step and hoping that other people are going to kind of pick up similar research themes and try it in different species. And I guess my last question really is what you think the key message in this paper is. So what is it that you're really hoping readers are going to take away from this work?
2: Well, I think... The most evocative ties into what you said earlier like when you think of the glaciations we tend to think of terrestrial species mm. and especially in, in in the northern hemisphere but i mm. think it, it really shows it adds to our understanding that the the evolutionary impacts of these place to glacial cycles are so widespread you know affecting even tropical marine ecosystems and you know that they, they never we never Think about uh, what, what happened to sea turtles who swim in, in tropical waters. So I mm. think that, that's, that's really an, an interesting, larger take-home message. And like I said earlier, this, the, the opportunities offered to us by the, let's call it the genomics revolution of the last decade or two decades mm. even, that we can now generate all these thousands of genome-wide markers in non-model organisms at low costs. I mean, that's, that's just simply amazing. And hopefully it will continue to further our understanding of of tropical marine evolution and also the conservation and management of marine species in general. I think those are key, nice, take-home messages.
1: Yeah, for sure. It it very much made me think about how I thought about glacial events as well, because like (laughs) I said at the start, obviously it has an impact on marine systems. It's just your mind immediately goes to mammoths. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But anyway, thank you very much for sharing your work and taking the time to do this. And just to finish off, I wonder if you could just remind people what your paper is called and also tell us about anyone else who helped you bring this work to us.
2: Yes, of course. So the title of the paper is The Population Genomic Structure of Green Turtles, Chelonia Midas, Suggests a Warm Water Corridor for Tropical Marine Fauna between the Atlantic and Indian Oceans during the last interglacial. Shout out, of course, to my co-authors who made this work uh, possible. It's, uh, first of all, Marilyn Christianen, who is an expert in the field and does great uh, work on uh, ecological interactions between seagrass and uh, green turtles. Martine Berube, who is our hero of the lab. She did the <laughs> library preparation. Uh, Mabel Nava and Kai Schut, uh, who are part of the Sea Turtle Conservation Bonaire team. And they, they, like I said earlier, do great work for sea turtle conservation and management. There's Francis Humber and Alonso Alfaro Nunez who basically allowed the study to happen by organizing <laughs> samples from outside the Caribbean. Please. And then uh, Lisa Becking and Per Palsbow.
1: Perfect. Well, it sounds like a fantastic team. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for sharing your work with us. Thank you. Thanks to Yurian, You can find his paper on the Heredity website. That's nature.com forward slash HDY. While you're there, you can also check out how to submit your own papers to the journal. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society. You can subscribe to the Heredity Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Twitter. That's at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm James Bergen. Thanks for listening.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.